If you're part of our congregation, you know that I've been preaching uh, through Mark for over a year now. And so today we come to the culmination of the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come upon a cross in chapter 15, and then we come upon an empty tomb in chapter 16. The cross, as one hymn goes, is the emblem of suffering and shame. And yet it's a cross that we, that we see up above. And if you drove in this morning, you would have seen one on the roof of our church. And maybe some of you this morning are wearing a cross around your neck. But it is an empty cross. Jesus isn't on that cross anymore. He's, his suffering and his shame and his sacrifice, that is all completed. It is done and it is never again to be repeated. And he's not in that tomb either. He was raised. He appeared to many people. And then he ascended up to heaven where he is right now. And from where he will one day make his return to take his people with him. And so the cross is filled with meaning and significance. And as we reflect a little bit today on what happened there, we want to explore a little of why the cross is so important for us. It's so important for you. So let's start by going back to Friday. Now we're not going to stay there. We want to make sure we end on Sunday. But Sunday doesn't mean a whole lot unless we go back to Friday. To his disciples and to everyone else that was there, Friday seemed like the end. But they didn't really understand Jesus. It's not that he hadn't predicted all this beforehand. Back in chapter 8 of Mark, in verse 31, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then back in chapter 9, again in verse 31, he says sort of the same thing. He says, he was teaching them, his, his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So that's twice he said that now. And then go over to chapter 10 and verse 34. He says there again, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But now, when these things did actually happen, especially the first part of those predictions, to them, it was all over. It was a tragic end. But the end was actually a beginning. And that's what we'll see as we go from Friday to Sunday. As we go from Mark 15 to Mark 16. As we go from the cross to the empty tomb. So let's start at the beginning of Mark 15 and think together about first the rejection of the cross. The rejection of the cross. Just like Jesus had predicted in the verses I read, it was the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the ones that, make up, that made up the temple council, it was them that rejected him. It was the leaders of Israel who rejected the Savior of Israel. This has been building up throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has kept challenging them, and they have kept rejecting Jesus. 
They saw him as a, as a threat to their power. And he, in turn, was systematically exposing them for who they were as sinners. And so, we get here to chapter 15, and these religious leaders bind Jesus. Can you imagine? Here is Jesus, the one who's innocent, the one who is without sin, yet he is being treated as a criminal. And they actually cuff him and hand him over to Pilate. This is all an amazing miscarriage of justice from a human standpoint. But it's also, at the same time, part of God's plan of redemption. It's scandalous in so many ways. But it was the only way that we could be reconciled to God. It had to happen this way. An innocent one had to be treated like a criminal. And so we have these two realities working together, which we sometimes have a hard time reconciling in our minds. Human beings are carrying out this plan for which they are responsible. And yet at the same time, God is accomplishing his purposes in, in every single detail of these events. And so after Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders, he's herded over to Pilate, the Roman governor. And at first, it seems like Pilate might be one that would deliver Jesus. He, he looks like he's going to be sympathetic to Jesus. But when Jesus doesn't answer any of the charges of the chief priest, it says in verse 5 there that Pilate was amazed. He was amazed by Jesus' silence. And then Pilate actually tries to get Jesus released by bringing up this custom of, of releasing one criminal at the Passover time. And so he brings out the worst criminal in prison. And he's, he figures, surely they'd pick Jesus over Barabbas. But what do they do? They choose Barabbas to be released instead. And in verse 14, Pilate still can't see what evil Jesus has done. And he actually proclaims his innocence. But, verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The religious leaders delivered him over. Pilate delivered him over. So now we have a full-scale rejection. The theologians rejected him. Rome has rejected him. The crowds have rejected him. He's rejected from every side. Just want to go back to Barabbas, though, because we shouldn't miss the irony. It's actually a picture of the gospel that shows up in this dark time. Here we have a criminal, one who is a rebel, one who has committed murder in the insurrection. On the other hand, we have an innocent one, Jesus, who has done no evil. As a murderer, Barabbas was on death row. He was just waiting for his crucifixion. But then in that verse I just read, verse 15, we have this amazing exchange where Pilate gives the crowds what they wanted. He releases this rebellious murderer, Barabbas, and he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. You see the irony there? Jesus gets what Barabbas deserved. Barabbas gets what Jesus deserved. 
Jesus becomes a substitute for Barabbas. Jesus gets the penalty for Barabbas' sin, and Barabbas gets set free as if he was innocent. My friend, today we should all identify with Barabbas. We are all rebels. We are all murderers at heart. We are all lawbreakers. We all deserve death. Yet, here comes Jesus. He carries our shame. He carries our guilt. He is condemned to death. And if we put our faith in his work on the cross, we are declared to be free and innocent of all our crimes, just like Barabbas was. This is the wonderful Savior whose resurrection we celebrate today. Well, not only does the cross remind us of the rejection of Jesus, it also reminds us of the ridicule of Jesus. It starts with the Roman soldiers there in verses 16 to 20. In Mark's version of the crucifixion, the emphasis here is not so much on the physical suffering that Jesus faces, although there is that, but it's more on the mockery and the ridicule. Here, Jesus is degraded and and mocked. What's interesting is that even in their mocking and in their rebellion against the Son of God, while they're doing that, they're actually giving true witness to God. They sarcastically are calling him, you know, all sorts of things. King of the Jews. And ironically, that's exactly who he is. And then they sarcastically kneel down in in homage to him, in mock homage. And that's exactly what Jesus deserves. So they are, even with venomous motives, acknowledging Jesus' identity. And so even in these dark times, light, however dim at this point, is breaking through. Well, we might expect that kind of mockery from Roman soldiers who didn't know any better. But now, as the beaten up Jesus is led away to his crucifixion site and then crucified, the ridicule comes not only from these pagan Gentiles, it comes from everywhere. It starts, though, in verse 21, this section with the fact of the crucifixion. And Mark doesn't give near as many details as the other gospel writers do, but everything just comes quick and in rapid-fire form. Uh, Simon carries his cross. He's brought to Golgotha. He doesn't take wine to numb the pain. He's crucified. It was the third hour, which is 9 a.m. There was a sign up above and two robbers on each side. Done. It was a historical fact. He was hung up on a cross. That's how quick this comes here in Mark. But then in verses 29 to 32, Mark describes, now with great detail and with dialogue included, the mockery that happened while Jesus is up on the cross. Let's just look at those verses again. Verses 29 to 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
And so here comes this derision. It comes from the religious leaders, it comes from the bystanders, and it even comes from those who are up on two crosses beside him. Even though Luke tells us how one of those robbers later repented and came to faith in Jesus. But there's mockery from every corner. You think it was bad enough that Jesus was already betrayed and abandoned and arrested and, and beaten up and hung upon a cross. But now he's verbally degraded and mocked and ridiculed on top of all that. It seems like Mark is trying to really get his readers to understand that this is the depth to which humanity can go. This is the extreme. This is seemingly the worst kind. But this is being carried out by human beings. Human beings like you and like me. Remember, Jesus was alone by this time. Everyone had deserted him. Had we been there, we probably would have left too. But Jesus endured this as a representative of us all. He was the one human who was different. He was the God-man who was forsaken by the rest of humankind. And so here we have everyone deriding Jesus. They're, they're wagging their heads at Jesus. They're mocking Jesus, reviling Jesus. And look what they're saying. Verse 30, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Verse 31, he saved others, he can't save himself. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. This is unbelievable, isn't it? Are, are you catching this? The very thing that he was doing on the cross is what they're mocking him about. The idea of him being the Savior. Only they were mocking him about being unable to save who? Save himself. They totally did not get Jesus. He never intended to save himself. It wasn't self-salvation that he was after. This ridicule assumes that salvation of self is the highest good and the greatest sign that could ever be performed. But Jesus' purpose was never one of self-help and self-fulfillment. He came, remember chapter 10, to give his life as a ransom for many. If he saved himself, he would not save others. If he'd have come down from the cross, he would have abandoned his mission. He would have abandoned God's purpose. And we would be left for dead in our transgressions and sins. But praise God, we don't have to think in those kind of hypotheticals. Because Jesus would have never done that. He could have done that. We're going to sing about the fact that he could have called 10,000 angels to save him. But he willingly obeyed the Father instead. He followed through on the plan, he was resolute. Remember when he was born, he was named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He wasn't going to leave that mission now. He had come all this way. He had lived a perfect life. He was in the middle of his greatest suffering. And he would not save himself now. He would not come down from that cross. Well, they said if he came down from that cross, then they would believe. But faith and belief never comes through sensational signs like that. Faith 
only comes through the person of Jesus, through his perfect life and through his sacrificial death. In their mocking, they misunderstood the purpose of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus was silent for this whole time and that he endured this ridicule is also an example for us, those who would follow in his steps. Here's how Frederick Leahy put it in his great little book called The Cross He Bore. He says, In the midst of this gruesome abuse, our Lord stood unflinchingly, leaving himself at the mercy of his enemies, he who by a word could have destroyed them. But he maintained the omnipotence of his silence, the power of his silence. In his bearing of vile abuse, the Savior left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And listen to this part. We cannot be faithful to Christ in this world and avoid reproach and contempt. And in this, our bearing should correspond in some measure to that of the Master when he was so defamed. End quote. Indeed, we cannot be faithful to Christ in this world and avoid ridicule. Ridicule is part of what comes with following Christ. Christians are outcasts by nature. The Bible even calls us aliens. We are different. Or at least we should be. So the cross came with rejection. The cross came with ridicule. But those sort of downer, negative-sounding things are far outweighed, mark that, by the accomplishments of the cross. We see some of the immediate results there in verses 33 to 41. There's a, a definite switch that happens there from the previous section. And the change of scenery happens literally. You can see this right from verses uh, 33 and 34, which say that, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was dark from noon until 3 p.m. This is a, a supernatural darkness. There's some um, liberal naturalist theologians that try to explain this away by saying that there oh, must have been an eclipse that happened. But the time of the Passover was always during a full moon, and eclipses never happened during a full moon. Others say that there could have been some sort of a dust storm that lasted for exactly three hours. But this was in the spring, during wet season in Israel, and dust storms don't happen then. No, this was a supernatural darkness. And whenever that happened, it happened other times in the Bible, it's always a sign of God's judgment. One of the plagues against Pharaoh back in Exodus 10 was that he put darkness over the Egyptians, over Egypt, other than Goshen, where Israel was. In Amos 8, verse 9, we find out that darkness is a reminder of God's displeasure and judgment. It says there, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That prophecy literally came true here. God was in judgment mode. 
Not only was he judging those that crucified Jesus, and not only was he judging all of mankind, but do you notice who else he's judging? He's also judging the sinless son who was carrying on his bleeding body all the sins of every person ever committed. In many ways, Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. The judgment that should have fallen on us was falling on Jesus instead. And that's what we need to see when we look at Jesus' sufferings. Those sufferings should rightly be ours. All of those sufferings. As you read about what happened to him on the cross, that should have rightly been yours. That's what our sins, the ones we committed yesterday, the ones we will commit tomorrow, that's what those sins deserve. Jesus took the punishment for those sins once and for all. And it happened in the dark. But, in verse 33, you have that wonderful word, until. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And right then you have that cry of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus carried all of our sins, he felt the intensity of the darkness. In many ways, he experienced hell. He felt the forsakenness of God for the first and only time. But it was also around this time that the Gospel of John records him as saying, It is finished. It is finished. Mark just says in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry, and that's, I think, what the cry was, and breathed his last. But right then, I think, the darkness lifts and the light comes back. And two direct, immediate results of his death happen. The first is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the curtain in the temple that guarded the entrance to the Holy of Holies, the, that, that place where God was symbolically believed to be present. That place was only to be entered by the high priest and only once a year when he made sacrifice to atone for his sins and for the sins of his people. That curtain was torn from top to bottom. And that just points to one of the achievements of Christ's death. Christ's death provided complete and forever atonement. You see, the priest was himself a sinner. But our great high priest, Jesus, was sinless and thereby could provide that once-for-all sacrifice. And now we aren't separated from God anymore, but have been reconciled by his blood. And that reconciliation is activated when we repent of our sins and when we put our faith in Jesus Christ's accomplishments and achievements. We have access to God now through faith in Jesus Christ. The second immediate accomplishment of the cross happens in verse 39. Let's read that verse again. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I love the wording there. The centurion stood facing him, saw how he breathed his last, and said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. In the Old Testament, it says that no one can see God and live. But now that the temple curtain is torn, this Roman centurion faces Jesus and confesses that he is God. 
In many ways, he's the first person who went into the presence of God. And a non-Jew, no less. The, the way really is open for us to come to God through Jesus Christ. We really have been reconciled to God. Our sins really have been forgiven. And this centurion proved it. And he did it with a confession. Truly, truly, this man is the Son of God. It's not until Jesus dies that anyone could rightly understand who Jesus really is. And it's the same today. There are those, you know, that think that Jesus existed, but that he was only a good teacher, only a man, but they just can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus really died and really rose again. While they really don't get Jesus. It's only when someone beholds the crucified and the risen Jesus that they can make a true confession of Jesus. Confession that results in eternal life. And that brings us finally to Resurrection Sunday where we have to end today. It brings us to victory. It brings us to worship and praise and joy and exaltation. It brings us to the exaltation of the cross. The cross is only one side of the coin. The reason we celebrate today, the reason we can sing that that ugly crucifixion site has a wonderful cross is because the gospel doesn't end with a rejected Savior. It doesn't end with a ridiculed Savior, and it doesn't end with a dead Savior. It ends with a risen Savior. Can I hear an amen? In fact, the crucifixion and the cross is not an end at all. It's a beginning. It's the event that canceled all our sin and opened the pathway into God's presence. And that access is proven by the resurrection. And so in verse 42 and right up through Mark 16, verse 8, we see what happened after Jesus dies on the cross. And Mark is really, throughout this narrative, just certifying that Jesus had, in fact, died. First, he has Joseph of Arimathea going to ask for the body, and Pilate verifies his death through the centurion. And Joseph lays the body in a tomb, and then Mark names all these women there at the end of Mark 15 and the beginning of Mark 16. There's actually some speculation that these women may have still been alive when Mark was writing this gospel some 30 years after it actually happened. And so they were eyewitnesses. People could go and ask them whether this actually happened, and, and they would corroborate it. But the fact that women were the eyewitnesses of both his death and resurrection is reason enough to believe these things. If Mark or any of these gospel writers, they all mention these women, would have wanted to fabricate these things and wanted to make this up, they would never have mentioned women as those who witnessed it. You see, women in those days were not seen to be reliable witnesses. But they did witness it. And that's one proof that it really did happen, among many other proofs. And so we have these women who saw where he was laid, and they're on their way back to that tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday. A resurrection was the last thing that they expected when they were going there. They were just going there to anoint his body. And they're worried about, how, about who's going to roll the stone away. Because why are they worried? Because all the men are gone. And they wouldn't have been able to do it. 
Well, it turns out they needn't have worried because the stone was gone. And then we have these beautiful words from this angel, this young man in the, in the white robe. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. He has risen. Tell his disciples, those same ones that had taken off already, and Peter, the one who had denied him, that he is going before you. Those are gospel words, my friends. The same people that deny him, the same ones that reject him, he calls them again to follow him. He is going before you. Implication, you can become his followers once again. You have been forgiven. You have been restored. You have been reconciled to God. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. It is finished. Atonement is done. Wrath of God has been satisfied. Follow him. How does this apply to you today? One writer made the comparison between Saturday's children and Sunday's children. He said our world is filled with Saturday's children. People like those between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. People who are in despair. People who are without hope. People who have no peace. People who are paralyzed by meaninglessness. Are you maybe one of those people? No, I'm not sure why you came today. A lot of you might be here today because someone asked you to come. Maybe you're here today because you're just trying to appease grandma or grandpa. Maybe something made you think you just need to be at church on Easter Sunday. Well, I know you are not here by accident. God knew you would be here. And so I want you to know that you can have hope. You are a sinner like everyone else here. And you need Jesus just like everyone else here. And so here's how you can be reconciled with God and not face eternal separation from God. First thing you need to do is just ad admit that your sins are an offense before a holy God. And then you need to turn from your sins, expressing your sorrow to God, and then turn to Jesus in faith at the same time, believing and relying upon what Jesus did on the cross. And then finally, turn your life over to him, realizing that he is now your king and your Lord and your Savior. And when you do that, the Bible says that you become a child of God. You become one of Sunday's children knowing that the hope of the resurrection is yours. If you want to know more about that, please, please come and talk to me after the service or Pastor Wayne or, or even with the one that you came with today. But if you are already one of, God, one of Sunday's children, if you are one of, been adopted by God already, I have a feeling that you're a little like I was feeling this week when I was thinking about the resurrection. We all know the hope of the resurrection. We've heard this story for many years. We know that the resurrection is God's way of saying that Christ's sacrifice was good, that it took, that it satisfied his justice. 
And we know that it gives us a glimpse of our future resurrection. But we are right now sort of living between two worlds. We know that we're really not part of this present world and we know that we're not yet in the world to come. But here we are. And we struggle. We struggle with entangling sin. We struggle with health. We struggle with school. We struggle with relationships. We struggle with finances. We struggle with parenting. We struggle with choices. And we face tribulations. We face rejection. We face ridicule. The abundant life that is promised to us does does not always feel so abundant. If that's where you're at today, I would just encourage you to linger in the hope of the resurrection. Know that Christ identifies with your suffering. And he made it all the way through that suffering, through death itself. And now, as a result of faith, you are in Christ. You are united with him. Ephesians says, you will be raised up with him. Because he has endured, you can endure. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because you know he holds the future. Life is worth the living. And it's all because he lives. I'm going to have the worship team come as we leave here. Just as we ought to leave, with all of these truths ringing in our hearts, it ought to bring us to singing, to joy. So let's pray and then I'm going to have the team come. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, for, thank you for the cross. We know, Lord, that for many in this world, the cross is foolishness. But for us who believe, it is the power of God. We thank you for sending your Son to live and to suffer rejection and degradation and pain and, and to die. And we now realize that it was us who deserved all that. Yet, in your great love, you sent your son. But it didn't end there, praise God. You raised him from the dead. And now we have peace and joy and everlasting hope. Help us to live victoriously as we serve a risen Savior. We pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.